Please remember, the information in our podcast could be a trigger for some people. And if you or someone you know has been affected by sexual abuse, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre 24-hour helpline is 1-800-77-8888. Hello, I'm Joyce. I'm June. And I'm Paula. We're the Cabinet Sisters, and we'd like to welcome you to our series of Countly In Podcasts, where we continue to shine a light on childhood sexual abuse and its impacts. In today's podcast, we will be talking to Dr. Marie Keenan, an Associate Professor at University College Dublin and a member of the Advisory Board of UCD's Criminology Institute. Marie is a lecturer at the School of Social Policy, Social Work and Social Justice. She's an accredited psychotherapist, restorative justice practitioner and a registered social worker. Previously, she's worked as a forensic psychotherapist in child protection, mental health, the Irish Probation Service, based at the training unit in Mountjoy Prison, and addiction treatment. She was instrumental in establishing the Granada Institute in Dublin for the treatment of men who had perpetrated sexual crimes against minors, where she was one of the three people to design the treatment programme and was the coordinator for five years. She's an internationally recognised as one of the leading scholars in two main streams of comparative social policy research and scholarship. Firstly, child sexual abuse and, Catholic, and the Catholic Church, and secondly, restorative justice and sexual violence. She's taught and led specialist workshops and presented her research and clinical work in Ireland, the UK, Belgium, Finland, the United States, Australia and South Africa. Now, mother of God. Marie, I have to, I have to stop there, but we will add a link at the end uh, of the podca- podcast with your full credentials on it. But I thought we better get on with the work or we'd be all day just listing out what you've achieved, which is absolutely impressive, I have to say. I was unaware that you established the Granada Institute. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Years ago, I was a social worker in John of God's in adolescent psychiatry. And the principal psychologist at the time was a man called Pat Walsh, Dr. Pat Walsh. And we had psychiatrists and various others on the team. And we were dealing with adolescents who had various problems in life and their families. No, I bumped into Pat Walsh at a conference. He was the head of psychological services in the whole of St. John of God's at this stage. And he said that the bishops had asked him, would he be interested or willing to set up a treatment program for their clergymen who had sexually offended against minors? And he said to me, would I be interested to join him to do this? That St. John of God's were interested in, in doing, in setting it up. So at this stage, I'd been working in the prisons and I'd been in addiction treatment and I'd been lots of things. And I said, yeah, I'd be really keen. So... We had various kind of meetings and talks, Pat and myself, about the kind of thing we would do. And I said, listen, there's a really good man that I had worked with in the Rutland. His name is Terry O'Sullivan. And I said, he knows all about group therapy. So the three of us, Pat Walsh from St. John of God's, Terry O'Sullivan, uh, formerly worked in the Rutland with me and then myself. We were the three founding father, so to speak, of the Granada Institute. We developed the programme and various things. 
We also had a couple of principles that we went back to the bishops. And one was, said we wouldn't set up a Rolls-Royce treatment program just for clergy, that we were aware there were other men out there, non-clergy, who also needed a treatment program and their families needed a program for them. The second was that we didn't want money to be a prohibitive factor for people who were coming. We set up a development fund. We asked all the bishops for a donation of several thousand. They would pay for their priest or whoever who was coming, but we also had, John of God's had a fund. Ordinary men, so to speak, who were coming, who couldn't afford fees, would have a sliding scale. Then the third was, whilst this was a program for sex offenders, I was keen that we wouldn't keep victims out of the operations. Now, we were aware that victims wouldn't want to come to the same place necessarily at that time that offenders were coming to. But we did see victims there and sometimes the victims of the man, if not necessarily for therapy, but for, for to hear the story. The other thing we did, that we didn't have an individualised assessment programme. Up to now, all the programmes where Father Johnny went for treatment and part of the assessment was they'd ask him, did you do it? No. And it was very much individualised. I wanted a systemic assessment so that as well as seeing Father Johnny, I wanted to see Johnny's bishop to know had he known anything. I wanted to see Johnny's mother. Did she ever suspect anything? And part of that was we wanted to see the victim if we could. And we set up a group therapy and an individual therapy program. So many of the men came, they had maybe six individual workup sessions, then they went into a group. And then we had what we called accountability meetings. Various parties in the person's life were brought in and we were all accountable to each other. And is it still up and running today? No. So I left after five years. I was very happy in the work. I didn't like the way assessments were going. The HSC were looking for assessments and they were buying assessments for individual clients. But it wasn't that we would treat them. I felt that we were a treatment centre, that we would assess the ones who were coming for treatment. But I didn't like that we were sending out these assessments back to two, so saying he's high risk, he's low risk, he's middle risk, and then nothing. Can, can you tell me that in the period of time that you were there, was there any good came out of that? Like, is there any research to show that any work that was done on perpetrators was beneficial in any way? Or My own PhD started in the Granada Institute. So in my own book, Child Abuse in Catholic Church, there's a number of chapters in that which is based on the work done with offenders. It wasn't an outcome study. It was more, what do we know about clergy sex offenders? Uh, the current ombudsman for children, Niall Muldoon, he, he worked in the Granada and came after me. But his PhD came out of it, and another by Patrick Randall, who runs the treatment program for sex offenders now, his PhD on attachment came out of it. But in terms of outcome studies, I don't think any outcome studies came out of it. Did you get a sense that people were benefiting from it in any way? Did you see? Oh, yeah, definitely. Obviously, if we were to do a follow-up study now on all the participants, so the clergymen and then the non-clergy in the Granada Institute, and see what was the recidivism rate or have they gone on to event? We'd have to go to Garda Records. We'd have to go to Tusla and see were there any more complaints. It's just such a shame. I mean, it's so vitally important that we address this issue and there was a, a missed opportunity with that. Anecdotally, and my own experience, I still have some contact with 
some people in the Granada Institute, including victims who came when their father was in treatment. I think that programme made a huge difference. Can you tell me what what was the programme? You were saying that they came for six sessions and then they went to a group. For six individual sessions, during which time we did this assessment, I had a kind of a rule that you know, if someone came and said, I didn't do it, right? Then I would, you know, you wouldn't just say, Well, bye bye. You'd say, Look, are you sure? Or is there any other, you know, so you know, you know, denial is in the camp, Absolutely, right? Yeah. Issue that people aren't going to rock up and say, Excuse me, I did. Yeah. Well, so, so a therapist doing an assessment, you'd kind of say well are you sure now and you know there isn't any way that this might have been that your actions even if unintentional weren't interpreted in a particular way or whatever and so when you've done all that if someone still was persisting with i didn't do this and i'd say well you need a lawyer not therapist right so i wasn't interested in that i was interested in point and i always said this to the team if we had 0.1 percent acknowledgement of wrongdoing then the rest was therapist skill that would get them you know engaged in more disclosure and so on at that time say around your dinner table or when you were out socially having a drink and you told people what you were working at what kind of reaction did you get my mother thought this was amazing but she stopped putting money in the church and half the time she stopped because she's now deceased she half going to mass so my mother was very proud and delighted that I was doing something I had two small children at the time and every time I was involved in the public domain when we started to talk about the work we were doing in the Granada or when we started to be involved in court cases I always had to prepare my children mam is trying to get these men to tell the truth and to stop hurting children and then my husband at the time, he just wanted to kind of protect me. If I was doing any television, radio interviews or anything, he'd always think the journalists are going to try and trip you up because what you're doing is unsavory almost. So he was very protective. But then socially, I've always had the view that in working with men who abused power, I also needed to have both in my clinical life and in my personal life, a few who were not abusing power and who were creative. And so when I worked at Granada, I had a small private practice and I worked with musicians and they knew what I did. Yeah, once you had your core support. With your experience with the Granada Institute, we have a view that therapy in prisons should be compulsory, but because of the logistics of that, it's just not always possible. Would you have any ideas of how you could expose perpetrators who have been found guilty to the facts of their crime? Some people are, might not be in there long enough or they might be having an appeal which excludes them from having to do anything or like there's loads of loopholes. Can you think of a way where you could actually counteract those little loopholes by some kind of programme or exposure to the facts of the reality of the crime they've committed? Because they do tend to be, you know, delusional in terms of what they've done and minimise it and play it down in their own minds even. Yeah, I definitely do because I've been involved in it. Well, the first is like 0.1% acknowledgement. So if someone acknowledges, well, look, I just went into her room and I touched her. For me as a clinician, 
I'm in business now. He may be minimizing, he may be rationalizing, all the delusion. But as a therapist, that man is possible to work with. And they're the ones, many of whom have been in programs when there were programs running in the prison. The more difficult group are the ones you're talking about, June. The ones that say, don't want to be in a program or I didn't do it. Professor William Marshall in Canada had a program for deniers. This is counterintuitive. So they had the sex offender program for the ones who said, I did, I did something. And right. then they got help. And over time, start to disclose more. The deniers program had exactly the same program, except that it was partially accepted that they didn't do it. So they said, I didn't do it. And the clinician said, okay, you didn't do it. Would you like to come to this program? And they came in and they did cognitive distortion work. They did victim empathy work, the same kind of modules, if you like, as you would do. They did life story work. They did sexuality work. They did power abuse work. They did all those same modules as you'd run in a regular sex offender program. The only difference was that they didn't have to admit anything. And what Bill found, and he has researched this, well, first of all, after a very short time, the people in the deniers group wanted to admit they'd start to nearly fight with the therapist and say, but we, I want to disclose it. So they had to go to the admitters group then. <laughs> yeah. And the second was, even the ones who stayed the course and didn't admit, so to speak, when they looked at the outcomes of both in terms of therapeutic change and attitudinal change and some of the stuff that you want to see before they go out, both pre and post testing showed that you had as good change in the deniers as you had in the admitters. What's counterintuitive here, although it's really helpful for victims, for me, when someone hurts me in my life, I want them to acknowledge that they have done whatever they've done. In terms of getting good outcomes, it's not, it's preferable, but it's not essential yeah. for these guys to stop by getting them to admit. So it's really essential to get them into a program by hook or by crook. I, I would feel like it's a bit like when I went to therapy and I would have told you, I got nothing out of it because I never opened my mouth. You can't not get something out of it if you're yeah. in that room. So it's the same principle. Even if they don't engage, they absolutely will, by osmosis alone, take yeah. on some something level of information that they need. Come back to Ireland and come back to your idea, June, that these lads should be in treatment and whatever. Dead right. We should have the prisons full of therapeutic programs Absolutely. for all sorts of things, yeah. irrespective of what you call them, because yeah. you have a captive group of men and women who are just, who soak up to a greater or lesser extent, especially if their problems are of an interpersonal nature. They soak it up. They can't not at some level, if they're alive at all. The system isn't really set up to rehabilitate, in all honesty. It's just set up to punish. And it's a stupid punishment because it doesn't save the victim. Never mind the perpetrator. It doesn't save anybody. This is the head of prisons. We're not there to judge them. We're not there to punish them. We're, there, we're taking their liberties that have been taken away from them. So that's the... Well, other than that, we just treat them like normal. We don't get involved. We don't want to know what they did, what they didn't do, all of that. 
and that's understandable too. You because I'd imagine you'd be biased if you were a prison officer and you really got into what the prisoner had done. There are principles involved in the whole criminal justice system. Yeah. And one is obviously to gather evidence and punish wrongdoing. Um, and sometimes by means of loss of liberty. Not that people should have punishment when they're in there, but the loss of liberty is the punishment. Yeah. But there is another principle in the criminal justice system which says Paula, that we are supposed to rehabilitate. I know. And we are supposed to be doing that. It is really a matter of, to a greater or lesser extent, different prisons, different governors, different setups do more rehabilitative work and others do less. A beautiful woman died this week called Ruth Mann. And she worked in the Ministry for Justice in the UK. And that woman burst her heart trying to get rehabilitation going in English prisons. And you could probably say in some British prisons, she managed to get really good rehabilitative programs. It's a matter of political will. It's in the thinking that prisons are supposed to be rehabilitating. Is it somewhere that you can actually hold people to this? Have a look on the mission statement of the Irish Prison Service. You're not going to get political will or backing from people when it comes to treating perpetrators because there's absolutely no will to treat the victims. You're having a hope of getting people to care about the perpetrators because they still can't see it as an end of the pro problem that needs to be managed. They, they want to just wipe their hands of it as opposed to realising that we need to tackle this from every angle. So it depends on political will, resources, depends a bit on foresight of the governor. And there are some great governors who are really doing their best. But go to the Irish Prison Service documentation itself. It will tell you that safe and secure custody, fair practice and rehabilitation. But it doesn't mean necessarily that a prison officer who sees their job as providing safe custody. He mightn't want to be doing rehabilitation, but the psychologist or the probation officer or other people, other services who would come in would be able to do the rehabilitation bit. So right. it doesn't mean that every employee of the prison service would do everything. The thing that I would say, if I have one criticism of it, they're a very closed operation. There's a lot of real good in the community, people who would come in and do stuff, even pro bono. I mean, I offered to do healing circles in the prison and we'd research them and evaluate them. The Director General of the Prison Service at the time, which isn't the current one, was up for it. A couple of prison governors were up for it, who were part of a team. There are vested interests or industrial relations at play yeah. that override sometimes the interest of the offenders and yeah. ultimately of the victims. The more men we can get safer in their way they live and prevent them from abusing, the fewer victims and the better it is for their own victims that they feel, as well as them being punished, that they've done something useful with their time. We all believe that the prisons are full of people who have never disclosed their own abuse, who've gone into addiction, gone into violent behavior, got themselves in a position where they're actually locked up, but at the back of it all is sexual abuse or childhood trauma. In your experience, would you, would you see that as 
as a likely cause of a lot of people who end up behind bars? Yeah, childhood trauma of what they call now the ACEs, they're there in the majority of offenders' backgrounds. I mean, you have what you'd call career offenders. Even there, nobody wakes up and thinks, I'll just spend my life hurting everybody else and in, in jail. I believe entirely what you're saying, Paula, and I think there's lots of research to show that. Men who end up in prison, and women as well, have accumulated childhood adverse traumatic experiences. Yeah, Emotional yeah. abuse, neglect, sexual abuse, physical abuse. Yeah. It's funny how your life has gone on this path. A lot of the work that you've done around mental health and you know, working with perpetrators and everything. You, have you any personal experience of abuse in your own background? I can only say about my own experience. We have unfortunately come across sexual abuse, not perpetrated by anybody in my family, but against someone in the wider circle. But it isn't my experience. I was the eldest of five children, one of whom is what we called mentally handicapped, now renamed as learning disabled. Yeah. Poor child, beautiful child. My dad was what we could call irresponsible, really good, irresponsible around money in the direction of compulsive gambling. I had an amazing mother, worked in factories all her life, cleaning floors, cleaning factories. She saved us. They separated eventually. I was 21, I think, when they separated. We maintained a great relationship with both all through our lives. And my father apologized, bless him, to me towards the end of his life. I, as the eldest, kind of hot between both. And I often thought afterwards that set me up in a way for what some people say is my ability to be absolutely there with victims. Because I understand what it's like to live with someone in denial. And at the same time, to be able to get with the perpetrator. I can get to the person here and I can still hate what you've done. Takes an extraordinary person to have that kind of empathy. I wondered where it came from. I think that that really came out of my own early formative years. Another area that we're really interested in is the restorative justice in relation to abuse, sexual abuse cases. Do you, would you want to speak a bit about that and what's involved in it? If somebody did have an interest in possibly pursuing it, give us a little bit of a, an outline of it. My interest in restorative justice came from a kind of a commitment to justice. So I used to think if we could get all the perpetrators into treatment, God, wouldn't this be brilliant? That my life started as so my professional life as a social worker, yeah. right? Like with children in, in care, coming in and out of care, and child protection. We needed to get good child protection services so that victims could be safe. And then I thought, oh, but now we need to, like these victims, these kids I was seeing in Brixton. I said they all have a dad who did this or an uncle, and they've done it to other kids. Then I started to think. The way to get justice for everybody was to get these ones into treatment. Mm -hmm. And so that's where Granada and all my, you know, commitment to treatment and prisons and all that came. And then I started to realize, but actually, even when they're in treatment, victims still don't have justice from criminal justice systems. Yeah. I hadn't given a lot of attention to, to that. But your victims need vindication. Yeah. They need validation. 
they need it in the personal sphere, but sometimes they need it in a societal way. Different victims need different things. Yeah. But I thought after the Savvy report, I was part of the bandwagon that said we realised how few victims reported and how many perpetrators there were out there who were not accountable to anyone. I promised victims, like, report and you'll get good support from the state. Victims believed that and they started to report and the attrition rate went up. That more reports came into the police. The police did phenomenal jobs. They sent all the files off to the director of public prosecution and there were fewer prosecuted. And so there was a big backlog in the office of the director of public prosecution. So few cases were getting to trial. Even was it a backlog or was it a decision? No, a decision. It was a decision not yeah. to prosecute. And at that time, they didn't have to give victims a reason. Yeah. But insufficient evidence wasn't good enough for many of the victims I was working with. Absolutely. And I then started to realise that actually the state wasn't going to prosecute these cases. That there were other interests at play, let's say. I mean, people in the victim services will say to me, but look, it's awful when these cases run and when there is insufficient evidence. We all believe the victim, but there's insufficient evidence to get it over a line beyond reasonable doubt and it's soul-destroying for everybody. If we ran these cases and got lots of media publicity about it, something about it would have to change. That is not right that the DPP doesn't run these cases and that we could put in loads of support, not just victim liaison persons, put loads of support in for victims, like go in like a military operation into these courtrooms. So this is how I came to restorative justice, because it fit with my disposition of always being able to work with victims and offenders. So for me, restorative justice in sexual violence came out of an interest in justice because I realized that many victims got no justice whatsoever from the criminal justice system. And that because it's so expensive and because it's highly litigious as well, and because there's no point in taking it, civil cases, unless the perpetrator has money, that victims didn't get uh, justice, true civil justice either. The majority of victims of sexual violence get no justice whatsoever. And I began to think that restorative justice could offer victims who get no justice whatsoever some form of justice, and it can offer those who get justice through criminal justice or other, you know, civil justice, an additional justice mechanism that would help them. And you just outline how it works, right? In sexual violence cases, restorative justice must be or can only work when it's victim initiated. I believe we need an agency and a media campaign that would say we have this service. Hypothetically, it's me. My yeah. in prison. He has been charged. He admitted guilty. So in this case, Joyce, yeah. you would call this agent and you'd say, my father's in prison. He's serving five years, 10 years, whatever. And I'm a victim of his abuse. And three years on now, and I actually think it would be useful for me, and he's an old man, to meet him and to have some kind of restorative process. I still have questions, things I want to say to him, and this would be helpful. And then that service would go then to your father, and they'd say, we've had a request from your daughter that she'd like to meet you. They'd explain to him what would be involved. That's what's called victim-initiated restorative justice. 
that is the only way restorative justice in sexual violence cases should work. Right? Now, I want to pause there for a minute. Yeah. With youth offenders, say, in Northern Ireland, a young fellow robs a bike, all kids in Northern Ireland and in the majority of, of jurisdictions across the world, including ours, the police decide, look, we put them into some kind of a restorative justice thing. They would call the victim whose bike was stolen and they'd say, we're going to have a restorative justice conference. Would you be interested in coming? That's offender initiated. Right. That is primarily in the interest of the young person. Go back now to the sexual violence cases. This work has to be victim initiated so that you don't have the scenario that could arise and has arisen, unfortunately, even in our jurisdiction, but where an offender would say to the prison officer or to his, to his probation officer, I'd like to meet the victim that I raped four years ago. And then the unfortunate victim's going on in their life and gets a call from this agency say, you remember Donald who abused four years ago? He'd like to meet you. That is absolutely outrageous, exactly. unacceptable that you would have offender-initiated restorative justice in sexual violence cases. We need an agency with a public media campaign that would say we have a service and we can do it. And if you're a victim and you'd like to meet your offender, if he's in prison or anywhere else, we'll help you. Here's the number. Why we need an agency and not the probation service for all those reasons. Victims can hear about it and can apply. But offenders who decide I would be willing to meet my victim if she wanted, that they could log it with that agency as well. So that if the victim, like a year later, think that there'd be a database, that this offender is willing. If you apply to do it and you were able to be told, well, your father has actually, a year ago, he has said, I would be willing to meet my children if they wanted. Right. That has a lot of benefit. Once you get the victim and defender in the process, then it is about both their interests then you said there should be an agency what do they do presently without that agency who do they contact if they have an interest in it they contact me they google how do you meet your offender right somebody tells them i had a lecture in ucd and there's this one up there her name is marie keenan and she talked about restorative maybe that's what you're talking it's as random as that right when I put this question, with the help of a TD, to the Minister for Justice, the Minister for Justice's response was that we do have a statutory service. We don't need a new agency or a service. Where is the agency? In the probation service. They say, we offer a restorative justice service to victims or to anyone of men who are currently on the books of the probation service. So if someone is in prison and on the books of the probation service, by definition, or if someone is on post-release supervision to the probation service and you're a victim of such a person, you can ring the probation service and they'll help you. With restorative justice. But if someone's perpetrator was in prison 15 years ago, is on the books of nobody, where am I to go? So would he argue that the probation service is there doing that job and maybe needs to be extended or expanded or something? I would say no, 
to the probation service expanding it for two reasons. One, because I have evidence from my research when we had asked victims, 30 of them, would you want restorative justice if it were to happen? If we were to have restorative justice, where would you want it to be? And what we found was the majority said anywhere but the probation service. Because the probation service in the mind of the victim is aligned with the offender. And the second is it needs to be an impartial service linked with the criminal justice service and funded but an impartial service that can offer a top class service to victims and to offenders and surely if if they did do this and they ran it from the probation service then it would also be offender-led not victim-led that's the second point exactly the probation service do a fine job in the rehabilitation of offenders but they are offender focused in their mindset they'd be all the time thinking about the benefits for the offender just briefly here Mary. if if i'm interested and yeah. if he isn't it can't go ahead so this is why we need an agency and this is why we need to have people who know what they're doing so you want to do it and you apply to the agency i go to your father and i say listen i write to him maybe and then i go and visit and i try and tell him it's kind of might be in your interest as well, not in terms of getting out early. You might have a role in helping your daughter put to bed some of her questions or uh, appeal in some way. And he would say, no, not interested. I'll leave you a card and she'll think about it. And if you change your mind. Now, what we know from research is when you leave them the card, they might change their mind. And a week or two or half a year later, they'll go to the prison officer and they'll say, you see her would you give her a call there for me i wouldn't mind to talk to her again so that's the first thing where people who don't know what they're doing or me calling favors with the police we had a case where the police went fabulously they were so helpful i can't say a bad word ever about the police they've been so helpful and they go and they say to the man would you come and he said no of no interest and then the police don't give me letter and then they go away and I said, did you leave the letter? No. And I said, would you go back and give the letter? Ah, Marie, like, you know, yeah. so that opportunity is lost. And we've had in England and various other places, people I've worked with over the years, you know, internationally different people trying to figure it like, like myself. And so a young fella, very serious rape of a teacher. The victim, three years later, she wanted to meet the offender. Anyway, went to this service that was in existence, the AIM project in, in Manchester. And they went then to the offender. And he said, yeah, I might be interested. Uh, I'll see. Talk to his family, who said, why would you be interested in that? You've already suffered. Should the media have hammered you? You're in jail. And they were only worried about their son. What the agency would do, and the offender doesn't want to do, you'd go back to him. You'd go, in that case, you'd maybe go and see his mother and his father, and you'd try and help them. Explain to them, yeah. You explain to them that, look, this would be in your son's interest. He he would be able to do something honourable, and that will help him in his life. But then, two weeks later, i drop him a note. I don't know if you've thought any more. Would it be okay if I popped in to see you in another two weeks? So you try it a couple of times. The statutory agencies, like as I had it with the probation service in the early days, they said, that's um, coercing. I said, no, that's not coercing. That's just giving people 
very good information. You're going back and you're going to hear their concern. And they're also free to say, no, I, I don't want you to call into me. But you wouldn't do it just once. You'd leave them the card. You'd say, look, if you have the letter, you have my number, if you ever change your mind. The process itself. That's what I want to know a bit more about. There's very little information out there about this process other than it's available. Somebody mentioned about the prep. It's almost like you don't have a say in what you can ask and what you can't ask. Oh, no, you can't. There are different approaches to this. And one is called the five-question model. And lots of people do the three-day course and they learn the five questions. One side for the victim and one side for the offender. And then if they want to do complex cases, they do another two days of training. And for me, the five-question approach is not the way to go with sexual violence cases. Nothing in the human endeavor that's worthwhile doing is risk-free. So there could be risk of some sort. But what we want to do in the preparation is to minimize as much as humanly possible, the risks in the process. Mm -hmm. So we want to ensure physical safety, emotional safety. We want to, as much as possible, ensure there won't be re-traumatization of the victim, that there won't be a power play going on in the room. And that's what the preparation is primarily about. We want the preparation to be so good that there are no surprises on the day. You don't prepare the answers, but you prepare what questions are going to be asked. So this is how it would work then, Joyce. Preparation would always start with the victim and the facilitator, usually two, preferably male and female, would meet with the victim. Sometimes they want to ask something. Why did you do it to me? Why did you do it at all? Why me? Some victims have statements they want to make about the impact on her and some victims have both. We'd ask the victim, why would you want this? What would be your hopes for the meeting? Why do you want to meet him? I want to see him as an old man. I take back power. That's why I want to see him. I want to face my fear. Then the two facilitators would go to the offender. Now we know what the victim has said. One of the victims that I was working with was abused when she was four by someone not, an, not miles older than her, but significantly older. But she was tortured now in her adult life about... Did he penetrate me? So that was one of the questions she wanted to ask. She had other things she wanted to ask, but she wanted to ask, did you penetrate me? So I know this when I'm going to meet him. He's willing to engage, right? So I then say to him, why are you willing? And he'll tell me why you suggested a request. So it's the same questions, but slightly differently pointed. What would you hope to get from it now that you're willing to do it? Is there anything you'd hope to get from it? Is there anything you'd want to say then I now have the knowledge of what the victim wants. And I'd say, I know she wants to know what happened to her, but I'm not going to say to him, she's going to ask you, did you penetrate her? But I say, I'd like to ask you now, would you be willing to tell me what happened during the abuse? And he'll say, okay. And I said, so tell me the story. And in the course of it, he tells me whether he has penetrated her or not. And then I say to him, would you be willing to tell her? story and he'll then say yes or no to that if he said no i'd ask him well why would you not if that was an important question for her you're really trying to cut down on the risk oh, when yeah. you're sitting there you're nearly sure of what's going to come out in it exactly. you know? and then you go back to her i'm not sure that he's that open to telling you what he did how would you feel would you still want to go on with a meeting and you go back and forth with that 
a little bit. There is a lot of trust and respect. It's a process that's built on respect. Marie, how long would that process take from the time I connect with you and request to the time it actually happens, if all is going really well? So it can take anything from minimum probably a month to six months or even longer. Yeah. It doesn't need to take forever. So what will make the difference in how long it takes is where the victim is along their own journey and much work they've done prior to this. And the perpetrator. I would actually say sometimes the longest is trying to find where is the perpetrator. Actually physically locate where they are so we can send our letter. Are they not supposed to be on a register? Well, sure. If they abused 20 years ago, they're not on the register. This is an interesting point, Paula, about victims and their own healing journey or where the offender is. There are two schools of thought about this. Some people say you need to be able to, to assess a victim before you'd allow them to get into the process. So if they were abused last week, they were still traumatized. That's one school of thought. And they also say you need to assess offenders for their suitability for restorative justice. And then there's another school of thought which I'd be more inclined to kind of be in, which is listen to the victim. And if the victim wants, irrespective of whether they're a week in therapy or 400 years in therapy, if they want it, my job is to make it possible for them. With offenders, it's the same thing. If the victim wants it, victim initiated, and the offender is willing, even if he is a basket case, my job is to meet him, see he has no empathy, come back to the victim and say, my sense of this man is, I don't think he's going to be the most empathetic in town, but it's the victim's choice. How long does the meeting normally last? Somewhere between an hour and a half and three hours. Again, there's no legal parameters on this, but there is best practice. And there is a lot of trust and respect. It's a process that's built on respect. The protection of both parties is important. You need to work really hard in the preparation of both parties. You need to work hard in the meeting. And you'd be asking of both that that they agree to the to the confidentiality, if you like, of the meeting. And you'd also hope that through the human connection, that's the magic, that's the miracle, that when they actually, you know, you don't have to like the person, you don't have to like anything about them, but when you can see the authenticity or attempted authenticity of their showing up, then you're changed by it as well. Yeah, and that's why it would need to be regularised because, as you said yourself, there's several schools of thought on what dictates whether a victim or a perpetrator is ready. And you have a different view on maybe some other people would have. Well, that can't happen because that means if I went to you, I get a shot. And if I went to somebody else who doesn't hold the same view and I, they don't perceive me to be ready, yeah. then that, that's not fair. But listening to your explanation there, it would appear that it's very important that you get the right person because you have to have empathy, you have to have patience, you have to have a bit of skill. You can't, you can't do a three-day course and run something like that. The facilitators would have to have a knowledge, obviously, the process, but they also need additional things. They need to have an understanding of trauma and the impact of sexual trauma. They need to have an understanding in depth of the dynamics of sexual violence. They also need to have an understanding of the law. If there are court cases pending or files gone to DPPs. Can I say a word just for a minute? Because this is important. 
The challenges in this is when there are no proceedings, when the family haven't gone to the police, when it's their father or their uncle, and they don't want to go to the police because they don't want their father to go to jail. Because those cases will never go to court because the families won't go. So all those cases are much more complex, right? But it's not impossible. Because those cases will never go to court because the families won't go and don't want it and all that. So in those cases, it's all exactly as I have said. If the victim wants it, we need to be able to do it. But what we also need in addition in those cases is we can also, as part of the process, work towards an agreement, right? And this can be signed by the two parties and the witnesses to the thing and the agreement could specify that the offender needs to go for therapy if they're an interfamilial thing that if if they're ever at the granny's funeral or the offender has the obligation to always stay at the opposite side of the room to the victim that the victim doesn't have to keep looking around to see is he here or where and where this works sometimes very well when there's been sexual violence or sexual abuse that'll never get to court it'd be very interesting if that was the case you know when all these cases are going to the dpp and he's turning them down for whatever reason yeah. wouldn't it be interesting to say no this is actually not going to court but they have to do restorative justice and they'd be perfect now it would be perfect. You would have your day. Yeah. That's in court, but you'd have a day and probably be better than anything that's happened in court. You see, and what you could do there is the DPP could say, we're not proceeding to trial with this case. We're now recommending restorative justice, right? You've got to go to restorative justice and then we go and then it comes to the agency, someone like me in the agency. Part of the condition would be if this didn't work, you know, or if he doesn't feel fit with the conditions of the agreement so go for therapy if the agreement is broken and it would be the obligation of the agency to monitor how the agreement is that the case goes back to the dpp who then can proceed to take the trial the dpp is deciding no this is not going to court because we don't have enough evidence and then he suggests the restorative justice yeah but then the perpetrator might be terrified to actually participate because if he admits he did wrong yeah no you'd have confidentiality about it. what happens in the actual restorative process could not be used in, in criminal court of law right. right that would be brilliant because what would happen is that the only reason it would go back to the dpp would be if the perpetrator broke conditions of the agreement yeah Right, which had nothing to do with what he did. And really, who would we have to meet to see if that could be done? PP, I've tried the Minister of Justice. Like, honestly, there is the solution. They have it in Belgium as well, in what's called the confidential centres, right? It's to do with child abuse and interfamilial child abuse. At the moment in Belgium, with these confidential centres, if a child discloses in school tomorrow that she was abused by her father last week, but it would go to this confidential centre, not to the equivalent of Tutelab. And they work individually with all parties, and then they would do a restorative thing, including with the children. The agreement that all parties would enter, enter 
in the confidential centre is that when there's an agreement that this man does this, this and this, that he moves out of home, if there's any breach of that agreement, if he misses a week in therapy for no good reason, if he goes back to the family home when he was supposed to be out of it, they would do a report to Director of Public Prosecution and say, this needs to proceed. I can see why they're not taking it up. They're just not prepared to put the investment into it. I don't think they've thought about it, June. Do you know? I don't, no, I don't. Just look at the follow-up on bar and orders. They're very poor at police and, and enforcing things like that. Is it possible for us to meet the DPC? That is where it would work. It would absolutely work. You don't need loads of resources. That little designated agency could have two police officers, a child protection social worker, and then a couple of restorative justice. Can I get your opinion on the latest TUSLA legislation about stress testing the victim's story in front of the perpetrator? The first thing I have to say is I haven't read in depth all the official documentation. But if what I've read in the press and I've heard your podcast and I've heard a few interviews about it is exactly as they're proposing, it is absolute lunacy that you would have the victim and the offender and the offender able to cross-examine in a room the victim for the what do they call it the adequacy stress of the test yeah to see if their story could possibly be something else and they made a mistake they don't understand trauma they don't understand the impact of trauma they don't understand the dynamics yeah. of sexual violence they don't understand the law i'd love a place where a child can feel equal to an adult when it comes to having an opinion yeah you know they can't just assume because you're an adult you're a rice it was an absolute pleasure having you on and your wealth of knowledge and experience in this area. And we're in total agreement on everything that I can think of. But it really requires somebody with your skill set to run that because like just listening to what it takes to be a facilitator really takes skill. And I'm just blessed that you had the experience you had in your younger life that set you up for this because if you, if you didn't have it, it just wouldn't happen. Like it has to be the right person to kick off something like that, to make it feasible and possible. So listen, just to say again, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you and no doubt we will be talking again. Thank you for listening. Hopefully some of the information we've shared will resonate with you and bring you to a place where you can have compassion for yourself. Please know that no matter how you feel or how you respond to the abuse, it was normal. We're hopeful and optimistic that those in a position of power to bring about change will be moved into action so we can finally eradicate childhood sexual abuse. So please spread the word and share the information. The decision to heal from childhood sexual abuse places you on the most important journey of your life. You're in charge of this journey. Only you know what works for you and what doesn't. It takes as long as it takes because there's no rush in it and there's no fake in it. You have to feel it. And just as the ripple of pain that you're in goes out and impacts all of those around you, so does the healing. And the more you heal, the more everyone around you benefits from your healing.
You've been listening to the Kavanagh Sisters podcast. You can contact us through Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or email the Kavanagh Sisters at gmail.com.